Many of you have played that game at some point in your life where people will say you're heading out to, you're going to be on a marooned island for the rest of your life. What are the five things you're going to take? And at least for Christians, usually one of the five things ends up be, being the Bible. But I'm wondering if we were to push it a little more and say that you can only take um, a certain number of pages from the Bible, what you would take. And I think for most Christians, if we could do it, we would take the, the New Testament because it's going to come down to the, the, the real stuff, right? The most important stuff. That's what we're going to talk about today. And it's a, it, to me, this is a really fun sermon today because we're doing something we don't do very often. And that is, um, I want to do a 10,000 foot view of the entire New Testament in one sermon. And uh, we're doing this as part of a sermon series. We're starting off this year with a new focus. I mean, a really concentrated focus on the Bible. And we decided to start it with a sermon series where we're making sense of the Bible. And we're really looking to answer some of the really hard questions we get sometimes about the Bible. We're looking to give you some tools for looking at the Bible. And we're also looking to give you a jump start on getting into it. And where we've been on this series, this is week three, but we started out by talking about the authorship of the Bible, how we understand that, and some few thoughts on that. And then last week was one of these jump starts because Eric talked about the Old Testament. And today I'm going to look at the New Testament. And then we're going to look at science and we're going to look at the violence in the Bible as some topics coming up. And then we're the final um, series we're going to talk about really practical stuff about how to read it in your daily life. So that's kind of where we're headed. But today we want to look at the New Testament in one sermon. And where I'd like to go with this is I'd like to say a few words about how it's structured and then I want to go back and sort of fill in the structure, this 10,000-foot view. And, and the beginning place for this is to, um, I want to really back up and, and look at the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Um, you know, a little bit of statistics. We, we did some of this the first week. But if you look at the Bible, about 23,000 verses of the Bible are the Old Testament. About 8,000 verses are the New Testament. So roughly, if you look at just breaking it down on verses... The New Testament is about a quarter of the Bible. But it's a lot more important than just that, just than it, how it looks. If you said it, it's not 25% of the importance for us as Christians, it's like the main importance. And if you go back to the really, really early church and you were to talk to the early church and say, hey, let's have a Bible study, they're pulling out scrolls only of the Old Testament, right? That was the, the Holy Scripture. But their view was that everything, they viewed it from the lens of Jesus Christ. And they would say that really all of the Old Testament points to and in its own way proclaims Jesus. And so that's why this New Testament is such a critical thing that we're going to look at today. And what I want to start with is, um, I, Eric talked about it last week, but I want to go back for one second and talk about the structure like in two minutes of the, of the Old Testament because I ultimately want to compare it with the structure of the New Testament. And if you go back to the Old Testament, there are four parts. You can structure it this way. There are four parts of the Old Testament. There's the law, the historical books, the writings, and the prophets. Those are kind of the ways that you can sort of divvy it up. And we talk about the law. We're talking about the most important part of the entire Old Testament. The Torah, the Pentateuch, all this stuff is right there at the start. And we get how God calls this people and makes them into a people and how Moses leads them out of bondage. And then God uses Moses. He, he presents the law to them. And really there's a sense in which everything else in the Old Testament is about explaining what that's about and how you live it. 
And then you get to the historical books, which are presenting this historical stuff, starting with the, the um, acquiring of Cana down to the destruction of Jerusalem and its rebuilding. Then you get to the writings, which are like all these, uh, the Psalms and the prophets and the wisdom and all the stuff that's sort of unpacking parts of this. And then the final bit, the prophets, they, they all have different things and they're super energetic and zealous in what they do. But they kind of all have this big pattern, if you step back far enough, that they are ultimately calling people to be faithful. They're talking about the judgment that's coming. And then they're talking in their own way about hope on the other side of that. That's kind of the, the pattern that they have on that. And I want to suggest that you may have never seen this. This is kind of new to me as well. But this same, these same four categories, these fa- the same four pieces of the structure exist in the New Testament as well in the exact same order, if you look at it this way. So, so beginning, you know, we had the law and we talked about this most important part of the Old Testament. Well, you start in the New Testament, we get the Gospels. We get these four books, the Gospels, and they are presenting the life of Jesus and what he's about and who he is and all this stuff. It is the most important part. And the, the rest of the New Testament is, in a large sense, unpacking that. And then you come to the book of Acts, which is really like the historical books. It's a book that's going to give this historical spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, starting from the time of Jesus' ascension in about the year 30, going through the empire, and then it ends in about the year 65 with Paul sitting in prison in Rome. Those of you who've been to Rome will see the alleged cell and all that. And then we come to the writings, which in the case of the New Testament are really the letters from the apostles that are really, again, unpacking what is faith, how do we live it? And then the very final book, just like with the Old Testament, really takes us to the prophets, but in this case, a prophet with the revelation of John. And you get the exact same pattern we talked about. You get John is dealing with this time of tribulation, but he's He's speaking into that, calling people to be faithful, judgment's coming, and there's hope on the other side of it. So you get, you get the same kind of parallel structure going on in the old and the new. And what I want to do with the rest of our time then, and we've got this structure with these four things, is I want to give you the 10,000 foot view of these things. And, and this will help us as we look at all of the New Testament and look at it, right? And the first part about this is the parallel to the giving of the law. But if you go look at the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels, we get the most important piece of it all. Like, so I guess if you were going to push this analogy earlier about the, about the island, and you were going to say, yeah, the New Testament is too much. You're not even going to get to take all that. You would probably just take the Gospels. If you, if you, if you could go even further, you would just take the Gospels. because you're going to, And some people might even go, if you're going to push even further, you might just take the red letter. Just the words Jesus said. It's going further. But you'd start with the Gospels. Because the Gospels are going to tell the story of Jesus, this thing that we think changes everything in history. And we get this idea that God the Father sent the Son into the world. And we get in in the Gospels, like in Luke 19, where he says he sent for the lost, those who are looking and searching and trying to find what it's about. And then it's interesting, within the four Gospels, the first three kind of form one group, and the fourth one is its own group own thing. We'll talk about it in a minute. But these first three, they're sometimes called the synoptics. But if you get into them, it starts very early on with the writers are talking about the kingdom of God. Or sometimes they'll use the word the kingdom of heaven. 
In the first three books, 82 times, you're going to hear that language. Kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And it's unpacking what that means. The idea that there's this kingdom. This idea that it means God is on his throne over all the cosmos. And that the predicament is ultimately really that we've not submitted to that, that kingdom. That we have um, taken in our own kingdom of humanity. That we have embraced all these things have taken the world in such a bad way. You know, that we've pursued our own desires, embraced violence and hate and warfare and all the other stuff that just spirals us down. And then Jesus comes and Jesus' message, the good news, is calling people first to repent, which is a fancy word that just means to turn from the stuff we, that we know is wrong, and ultimately to commit our allegiance to his kingdom. And then the rest of his teaching is about what, is, what does that look like? What does that mean? How do you live that? And the thing about Jesus' teaching and all this is he doesn't come just um, calling us to repent and talking about the kingdom. There's a sense in which he embodies the kingdom and how he lives and what he does. He, he's showing us a physical, tangible embodiment of what that looks like, the beginning of his kingdom. And Jesus will talk again and again about how the kingdom of God is at hand. At least in one place, he's going to talk about how the kingdom of God is in you. And then we get that every time somebody get, rounds this corner and expresses and commits their allegiance to God's kingdom, it pushes back the darkness in the world. We live in a broken world. That's a, we'll talk about some other stuff down the road. But we live in this broken world where we encounter evil. But every time somebody commits to this kingdom, it pushes it back, right? I was thinking about that this week. You know, there, it's, um, it's, it's hard to do theology on a bumper sticker. And it really, really makes for some bad theology sometimes. But I actually saw a really good one this week. I pulled up behind this car, and they had a, a pretty long bumper sticker. But the bumper sticker said this on it. It's, it. It said in the bumper sticker that when the power of love overcomes the love of power, we'll have peace. And I thought, well, that's kingdom stuff. And that's the kind of stuff we're talking about entering into this kingdom kind of stuff. And when we do it, it changes who we are. It changes how we see the world. It changes how we handle the hurts, the brokenness. It changes what we're about. It changes how we make decisions. It changes everything. And I'm a lifelong Episcopalian, and I'll just say it. I think sometimes we we, get, we struggle with this in the Episcopal Church because if you're like me, you're baptized as an infant. And instead of you taking these vows about repenting in the new kingdom, your parents and godparents do it. And if you're like me, you went to confirmation way too young and it was perfunctory. And you said the words, but you probably didn't really understand them or mean them. And then if you're lucky, later on you hear Jesus calling us to repent and express this allegiance for this way of love and peace and it opens up this new world. That's certainly the experience that I would say that I've had. And I think it changes everything, right? It takes us to this new place. And at the end of the day, Jesus summarizes the three-fourths of the Bible talking about the kingdom. He says, look, it's this. Love God with everything. Love your neighbors yourself. Those are the two bits, right? That's what we're called to. And that's where the first three gospels lead us. The fourth gospel is completely different. 
I think it leads us to the same place, but it comes at it in a different direction altogether, John's gospel. Because John isn't going to use the language, the kingdom of God, but he's going to call us to life, the fullness of life. John is going to come and say, walk this way and abide. We can talk about what that means, but abide in Jesus, believe in Jesus, and walk with him, and you're going to find real life that ultimately leads us to having a heart of love in the world. And I think so in that sense, it leads us to the same place. All of these first four gospels teach us what God is like. We see something of his heart in how all this plays out. We learn that God has compassion and love for all of us. But we, we learn in particular that he has a special place for the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. We learn that he has mercy for the sinful, which I'm especially grateful for. That he heals the broken and that he calls us to partner with him and walk in relationship. And then all four of the gospels in their own way come into the home stretch of Jesus' life. And you look at the sort of the, um, in some ways, the climax in that. That when Jesus... Um, goes on trial it's an indictment of all of humanity and when Jesus dies um, it's judgment on human sin it also shows grace and love and then when he's resurrected it's a triumph over evil and sin and hopelessness and despair that's the gospel that all of the that that's the most important piece of the whole book that's the gospel. And the rest of it from there is how Jesus takes his band of followers and charges them up to go be rebels. Go find ways to tell people about this new way of seeing it, this new kingdom, this way of, of going at it. And then we get after the resurrection and the ascension, we get the stories in the Bible about how the Holy Spirit's given. And the, and the followers who are given the Holy Spirit are... are charged and invited and sent off to do what Jesus did, to continue to heal and to cast out demons and to preach and teach all about this new way. And Jesus says, start in Jerusalem where you are, go to Judea, Samaria, and to all the world. And then we, that takes us into the, rest, into the rest of parts of the New Testament. And the very first thing you got to say when you begin around that page is the majority writer of the New Testament, Paul, is this Jewish Pharisee who's known early on because he's good at persecuting the church. And, you know, sometimes we, you know, again, 10,000 feet, we gloss over the power of redemption. And I think Jesus, Jesus I mean, God in part wants to put this front and center because you've got the biggest enemy, let's say, maybe of the church, finds Jesus and converts and ultimately spreads it throughout the entire Roman Empire and is the one who writes the majority of the New Testament and these letters and things. And it's a powerful story of redemption. That's what he's always calling us to his love in this better place. And the way it works with Paul, Paul went through the Roman Empire spreading the good news, the stuff we talked about already. Every place he went, he would preach the kingdom has arrived and all this stuff. He'd preach it. People would ultimately see it and come to him. He would establish leaders and then he would go off to the next place. That was his pattern. And then what happened is these leaders would write to him and say, man, we got this big problem. You know, we're struggling with this, whatever it is. And then Paul would write back to him. And usually he wrote a lot of these letters, but usually there was this pattern where he would give them some teaching. He'd give them some encouragement. He'd give them practical advice. 
in his letters. And the other apostles did similar things. So that at the end of the day, we get um, the New Testament has 27 books. 21 of them are these kinds of letters. Writing into this. Teaching, encouraging, practical advice. And so that's the writings, right? And, and uh, you may have never noticed this, but so I'll say this before we go into the next one. But the letters are organized like this. So if you're new to the New Testament, it, after you get through the Gospels and Acts, it's going to be Paul's writings going from the biggest to the smallest, usually from communities to individuals. And then you get the other apostles going from biggest to smallest. That's the pattern. And then that ultimately leads us to the final book, the book of Revelation, which is written about 30 years after Paul and Peter have died, either by John or his community. It's a book that is about the struggle between good and evil. And it's a prophetic book. It's, a, it's an apocalyptic book. It's a difficult book. When I was in undergrad, I had this uh, Bible professor who taught us about it, Dr. Lester, he, the late Dr. Lester, God rest his soul. He was, he was tough. He was known as Dr. Lester, the tester, the grade point molester. <laughs> I, had him, I had him three times. So, um, <laughs> but I always remember what he said about the book of Revelation. Because he, he, the book of Revelation, he would say, the thing about it makes it so hard is he said, you'll have some really smart scholar come and open it up and explain it to you. And you'll go, yeah, 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 that makes sense. And then the next scholar walks in the room and will explain it. And you'll go, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That it's, I mean, it's that kind of thing. It, lots of people can see different things in it, make sense of it. So it's a hard book. And so we kind of hold it in a different category. It's this prophetic book. But we get that the early chapters are key to understanding it. That these seven churches and Paul's writing to them. And each one of the seven has got a different problem. The, one, the ones who've lost their love, their first love for God. They're the ones that have become lukewarm. And the scripture talks about how he vomits them out of his mouth. And the ones who've embraced the false teachers. And all this goes on. But at the end of the day, what, what this book is really ultimately doing is really trying to speak to those who've compromised or those who are at risk of compromising to encourage them. And then it brings the whole New Testament to the close by holding up the ultimate triumph of saying that, look, we live in a broken place with this heartache and, this, and the church doesn't get it right. Nobody gets it right. There's all this brokenness. But at the end of the day, God triumphs. And hold on to that. This ultimate deep hope that pushes back against despair. That's the New Testament in one sermon. And the thing about it is, it still changes lives to this day. And I'm not perfect at this by any means, but I try to read it at least five days a week because it still changes me day by day. It still helps me to see the kingdom. On those days when I think that the love of power is overcoming the power of love, it reminds me that that's not the case, that ultimately God is the victor. And it encourages me to see that kingdom perspective and lean into it. It changes us. And the very last week of the sermon series, we're going to talk about practical ways to read the Bible in your daily life. But I'll just tell you, in my life, the time I've grown the most, of all the years of my life, the time I've grown the most was a semester in college when I read the New Testament for the first time cover to cover. Because God speaks through it. And God challenges us through it. And it puts us in a different place, in a different perspective. 
And there's, you know, we read, we sang that song a few minutes ago about these ancient words and how they'll change us. And I believe that. And I don't know if you believe it, but if you'll try it out, I think you will believe it because it will change you. And the New Testament is a place to do that. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us. Wherever we've been, whatever we're doing, you love us without condition and you call us to be your sons and daughters, to experience your embrace, and to engage in your kingdom work. Lord, we pray that as we follow you and as we read scripture, that you would encourage us in that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.